Let's listen now to the word of God beginning in verse 1 of chapter 7, Hebrews. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Then let's move over to verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he, that is Christ, continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it is indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those priests who offer sacrifice daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the Lord appoints, for the, the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son which has been made perfect forever. Now continuing in chapter 8. Now the point of this, what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Since they are priests who offer gifts according to law, they serve a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old covenant. He mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. The end of chapter 5 and into chapter 6, and at the end of chapter 6, our writer tells us that we're approaching a pretty important portion of Scripture taken from the book of Genesis. He's going to talk about a priest in the Old Testament by the name of Melchizedek. And he's going to tell us a little bit about Melchizedek and going to tell us what that means for us. The key thing is that we have a high priest. It's Christ. He is our high priest. And he's going to compare the priesthood of Aaron, the priesthood of the Levites under Moses, to the priesthood of Melchizedek, which is the order of priesthood for Christ. Christ is a Melchizedekan priest. 
Now, this is strange maybe to the ear when you first hear it, so I'm going to try to sketch through in the time we have this morning just kind of a comparison. In fact, that's the title of our message. It's called Better, and better automatically implies and contemplates a comparison. Here this is, and here this is, this is better than that. And that's exactly what the author's doing here in these couple of chapters. He's pointing out the features of two covenants, I mean two priesthood, two high priesthoods, and is showing exactly what they amount to and how they compare to one another. And, but first we need to know a little bit about Melchizedek, and it says there in our text, gives us a sketch, Abraham, back in chapter, Genesis chapter 14, met Melchizedek when he was returning from a large battle. And Abraham had with him the victorious allies as well as a large amount of spoil from the war, a bounty. And as he came back, coming from the Transjordan area back across the wilderness and up to the hill country of Judea, which wasn't Judea then, of course, but he, he saw uh, a city, a Jebusite for, a fortress that had a, a king. And this king was also a priest of the Most High God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the same God that Abraham had heard the voice. And he, in meeting this king, came to him with the proper posture. And the proper posture was that of one who gave homage to this king, this priest. Now he was a priest, his name was Melchizedek, which is Melech Sadik, which means king of righteousness, but he was also the king of Salem. That was the name of the mountain fortress. It was Salem, Shalom, peace. So he was also not only the king of righteousness, but he was the prince or the king of peace. So here we have righteousness and peace joined together in one person. And he comes awful close to saying here, he says, he's resembling the Son of God. And so here we have this priest, Melchizedek, in the Old Testament, appears only once in this particular context, but at this pivotal and, and high point of God's call to Abraham, and he resembles the Son of God. Well, the full-blown development of that is that this particular priest was unique. He was here in this place. There's no, there is no tracing of his lineage, his genealogy, where he came from. And in the terms of a priest, the most important thing you had is the genealogy. Someone was the son of someone who was the son of someone who was the son of someone who was the son of Aaron, who was the son of uh, Levi, or the descendant of Levi. And Levi of the sons of Jacob had been given the office of the priesthood in Israel. But Melchizedek had no lineage, no, no one before him, no predecessors, and no successors. In other words, the ends were kicked out. He stood alone. And this is a symbol and, a, and an emblem of an eternal priesthood, one that has no beginning, one that has no end. And there are features of this priesthood that resemble Christ. And I won't bother with all the interpretations. Some say that he, he was a type and a shadow of Christ, to be sure. And some have even insisted that he was an early um, manifestation of the pre-incarnate Christ in Scripture. I'm not sure that the, 
that we can go that far, but whatever it is, it's very important to know this order of Melchizedek. And so what we're going to do here in this passage is we're going to compare the two orders. And the first thing we need to know is from the very beginning, our text says that the greater receives tithes from the inferior. Well, Abraham paid a tenth part, a tithe, to Melchizedek. He tithed to the priesthood, which meant Melchizedek, in terms of status, was superior to the inferior. He was superior to Abraham. Not only that, the superior blesses the inferior. And Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And in the process, with Abraham, blessed the God of Abraham, who was also, of course, the God of Melchizedek. And together they had a communion. Melchizedek brought out bread and wine. And there's a tremendous amount of significance here with Melchizedek as a type of Christ, as a, as a, a one who resembles the Son of God, offering communion to the one who was the father of the faithful. And they had that moment together, that time together, and then that's it. We don't hear any more about Melchizedek at all. And when we get then to the New Testament, where our author's trying to convince Hebrews, people who grew up from their infancy on Moses and the law and the priesthood and the sacrificial system and the ceremonial law and all of this, he's trying to tell them that Jesus is superior. He's better. That if you've come to Christ, you've come to the fulfillment, you've come to the apex, you've come to the conclusion, you've come to the yes. And that everything that went before are types and shadows. The law, Moses, and all of that is ty are types and shadows of the real thing. And so this is the point he's trying to get across. And so the greater blesses the lesser. Now, what does that have to do with Aaron? Well, this is an interesting principle. In our text of Scripture, in this uh, chapter and a half, he tells us that Levi, who was the grandson of Abraham, Abraham, son Isaac, son Jacob, son Levi, the fourth generation, Levi was in the loins of Abraham when he paid the tithes to Melchizedek and when Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Isn't that an interesting thing? Interesting way to look at it, that, that, that Abraham, before Melchizedek, was the same as Levi being before Melchizedek. And this is an important biblical concept. We don't have time to go into it a lot this morning, but it's the notion of solidarity, that God regards fathers and sons and generations sometimes as a single unit. In fact, that, if we understand that doctrine, we'll understand how we can all be sinners in Adam and we can be righteous in Christ. In Adam, by natural generation, procreation, descended from Adam, we are sinners because God considered Adam a sinner when he disobeyed. And in Adam, when Adam sinned, we sinned. Paul makes this point. He develops this theologically in the book of Romans. So that... We can be in Christ when Christ had his obedience, his suffering, his, his living and dying for us and being raised from the dead. By faith, we can be 
in Christ and have all of the benefit of that. So this idea of solidarity is taught here in this particular passage. So Levi, that is the the son of Abraham, was in Abraham when Abraham was before Melchizedek. So that is this, this solidarity. So he's better in terms of the relationship of superior to inferior. The Melchizedekan priesthood, high priest, is a better priest than the priest of Aaron, of lineage, of the descendant of Levi. Well, in the second place, he's better because of a better calling. Melchizedekan priest, that is Christ, now we focus on Christ as one of a priest like the priest that we found in the Old Testament, an unusual priest, a priest that predated Aaron, of course. We find that he, Jesus Christ, was called to be a priest, and his priesthood was secured with an oath. We talked about this last week. An oath is God's unilateral, infallible word of promise. So it's a better promise. Aaron was not called by a promise. He wasn't called by the gospel, good news of a promise that God was going to accomplish it no matter what. Aaron was called by a commandment. God told Moses, said, bring Aaron and his sons before me that they may be priests. So the difference between promise and commandments. Remember we talked about commandments, laws broken, and you lose all the benefits. The stipulations of a, of a contract is you keep it, you get the reward. You disobey it, you get the punishment. But not a promise. A promise, God says, I'm going to do it regardless. And so Christ is called with a call and an oath Aaron was called by a commandment. In other words, Christ is grace, freedom, bestowal, unilateral blessing. The Aaronic priesthood is law. It's commandment. It is the letter which condemns. It's the law which is spiritless and lifeless in and of itself. And it's on that basis of a better calling that the Melchizedekan priesthood that Christ enjoys is better. Then in another place, it's a better because it is eternal. The Melchizedekan priesthood, as we mentioned by pointing out the the life of, of Melchizedek, is an eternal priesthood. No beginning, no end, no mother, no father, no children. Nothing ever spoken of except the eternal now, which is eternity. The forever and ever I am is the basis of the priesthood of Christ. He ever lives to make intercession for us. He has the power of an indestructible life. And these are quotes right out of the text there in Hebrews. That's who Christ is. Christ is eternal. And you compare that to the priesthood of Aaron. It was temporal. In fact, every high priest died. In fact, they made a big deal out of it. When when Aaron died, you remember Moses took Aaron up on the 
up on the mountain and stripped him of his, of, of his uh, uh, garments, his high priest garments, and he gave the garments to Eliezer, the son, one of the four sons of Aaron, and handed the priesthood to him, and Aaron died on the mountain. Many years go by, Moses dies. They go into the land of Canaan. They get in the land of Canaan, and way over in Joshua 24, Joshua now has, for the most part, the land has been conquered. At least it's been invaded significantly. And Eliezer now is an old man. And the Bible says that Eliezer died. And then the next priest came, and the next one, and they die. They never last forever. They're mortal. They're dying priests and they just don't live forever. Josephus tells us that in his estimation, there were 83 high priests of Israel, 83 high priests in Israel between Moses and Aaron, who was the actual priest, Aaron, and 70 AD, the destruction of Jerusalem. 83 dying priests. Jesus Christ, one eternal reigning intercessor priest. In the next instance, it's better because there's a better um, sacrifice. In the, old, in the old order under Aaron, they had to sacrifice, and they sacrificed animals every day. They sacrificed them on an annual basis. They sacrificed them during fe festival times, and you're familiar with the, the whole sacrificial system, the wave offering, the sin offering, the thank offering, and all of that. And they killed and slaughtered animal after animal after animal. They continually killed the animals. And we come to find out that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. They could just cover it. They could just ceremonially hide it. Move it to the time when an eternal sacrifice would be made. When someone who was a much better sacrifice, instead of animals, he would sacrifice himself in a once for all perfect infinite atonement. And that's Christ. Christ is a better sacrifice because he's not only the priest, but he's also the victim in the sacrifice, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The Melchizedekan priesthood is better because it's based upon the operations of a better sanctuary. God commanded that the tabernacle be built, but the tabernacle was a flimsy tent that wore out and was tattered. And by the time we get to the days of the judges, there were only just some remnants of the tent. And only the Ark of the Covenant was the major piece of furniture that survived. The others had been stolen and raided and destroyed and worn out over those several hundred years. And it was a temporary. Now the Lord told Moses to make the tabernacle according to the pattern that God showed him on the mount. Why would God be particular about making the tabernacle according to the pattern? Why did he tell Moses, don't deviate from the instructions. Build it exactly like I tell you to with the dimensions and the furnishings and the curtains and, the, and, and everything. Is because the tabernacle was a representation, a type, a picture of Christ. And the Holy of Holies was a picture of certain things. And the Ark of the Covenant, these were, these were shadows and types. They may be weak and beggarly elements, but they were nevertheless something that would teach something about Christ. So don't mess it up. Do it as I told you on the mountain. But even then, even in its good, faithful typology, 
the tabernacle and then later the temple which was built according to the dictates of, of David's heart as he designed it and gave it to his son Solomon to actually build. The temple went way, way beyond the pattern on the mountain. It kept the core of it with the holy place, the most holy place, and, and, and the, the various pieces of furniture. But the temple was inordinately ornate throughout and huge, and it was expanded. The second temple was, was built as well as they could, and then Herod vastly reinforced that. And, and it was very, very impressive, but it was all made out of material. Stones replaced curtains and fabrics. Now that's pretty good when you build a structure out of huge stone. In fact, Jesus' disciples looked at the temple and said, wow, how did they get these huge rocks to stack up here and make this incredible structure of this temple? And Jesus told them one day it'd come and one stone would not even be on top of the other. They'd be all raised with a Z, raised. <laughs> and that's what happened. But Jesus works and does his work in a better sanctuary, a heavenly throne room, which is really real and authentic. That which was earthly was just temporal and, and, and pictorial. That which is in heaven and so he talks about the right hand of the majesty, that is God on high, and the work that God does in, in, in uh, Christ does at the right hand of the Father, being an advocate, an intercessor. And don't think of Jesus' intercessory work as Jesus walking in saying, oh please, Heavenly Father, will you do this, will you do that? You know, can I, can I tell you to, to forgive someone's sins, please? No, no, no. He's at the right hand. He's sitting on the throne ruling and reigning. His, his, his requests are granted by God because the Lord said, ask of me and I will give thee the nations. And that's what the Lord does. He sits at the right hand or stands at the right hand of God in his intercessory work and says, give me Ron Williams to be my child. And the Lord God Almighty Father says, certainly. You've satisfied everything that I needed. You satisfied, you vindicated my justice. You displayed my holiness. You brought forth my righteousness. You've kept my commandments. You have loved me with all your heart. You have been obedient unto death. The Spirit has raised you in power and glory and immortality. Certainly, I'll give you what you ask. That's the intercessory work. The Lord is in that heavenly sanctuary. Well, you must hurry and move on. He's also a, uh, it's a better covenant because as I just began talking about, kind of ahead of myself, he's a better intercessor. An intercessor is someone that goes between. Aaron did the best he could. <laughs> and Aaron, Aaron wanted so much to be a worship leader. Before Moses ever got down off the mountain, he made a beautiful golden calf and, and got the choir and the, and the praise man together and they did a wonderful ceremony and made an incredible worship service around the golden calf. But that was not God's commandment. That was idolatry. That was sinful to the core. And that was the problem with Aaron. Aaron was a child not only of Abraham, but Aaron was a child of Adam. 
And he was a sinner to the core. And even his efforts to praise and worship God and to, and to have a great religious experience was as sinful and as far from God as it could be. And there's the failing. Aaron tried to be a good intercessor. He tried to be sympathetic. He did everything he possibly could. And you know the story of Aaron. But he rebelled against Moses at one time along with Miriam, the sister. Aaron and every high priest since Aaron somehow failed. And we'll talk about that in just a second. But God, Jesus is a perfect intercessor. Because as fully God and fully man... He's the perfect mediator, the perfect one in between. He knows all about the mind and the heart of God. He knows all about the mind and the heart of humanity. He knows us because he is sympathetic. He has lived a human existence on the earth, in the dust, and amidst sinners. And he knows when we pray to Him, that's the basis of it. Because we, He knows. But then He knows the Father. Because He is fully God with the Father. And He's the perfect intercessor. We must hurry on. Uh, another reason that it's a better covenant is, as I begin to let you know, it's the high priest of the Melchizedekan priesthood, that is Christ, is a better person. Just that simple. <laughs> Uh, and, and there's a hymn in one of the verses. It says, he is holy, guileless, undefiled, apart from sinners. A four-stanzaed hymn in one of these verses that tells us about the perfections and the goodness and the authenticity and the genuineness of Christ and his holiness and his perfection. He's just a better person. He's able to be a better priest because he's a better person. And let me just sketch for you. I mentioned uh, Aaron, how he, even though he was designated the high priest, he was a sinner. So were all the high priests. In fact, the first thing they had to do was to sanctify them, make them holy, set them apart, give them a, a big washing down, scrub them down, soap them up, put oil on them, put them in brand new snow white garments. They had to do everything they could to kind of clean them up and make them look good and, and get them ready to go into the presence of God. They had to sanctify them because they were such sinners. They must make sacrifices for themselves first before they ever make a sacrifice for the people. They got to take care of their own sins. So the high priest had to make a sacrifice for himself before he could make an atoning sacrifice for the people. The high priest of Aaron were sinners. And let me tell you, if you want an idea of what, uh, what sinners they were, remember back a year or so ago, we studied the, uh, the life of King David and we studied about Eli and his son. Well, Eli was a priest, high priest. Samuel was a priest about his sons. You study about the priests, the priests that, that opposed King David and, and, and study the priesthood in ancient Israel. It was, a, it was a pretty sketchy bunch of guys from time to time. And if you don't believe the Old Testament, get to the New. Look at the high priest that tried Jesus, Annas and Caiaphas. Look at, look at those priests and how they treated the sinless son of God. It, it was the priest actually that formally condemned Jesus to death. Pilate would have never executed Christ if those high priests had not insisted on it. The Herodian party there insisted and threatened Pilate to go over his head and go to Caesar 
if they didn't execute Christ. That's the condition. Look, look at later on, a few years later, when Paul stood before the high priest himself, when he was in trouble there in Jerusalem, he stood before Ananias, and, and Ananias uh, and Paul got into it a little bit because Ananias was so vile and so contemptuous of the Word of God and so irreverent that Paul didn't even recognize him as a high priest. And the high priest instructed the people to slap Paul around a little bit. The priesthood was sinful, but here is Jesus, holy, guileless, undefiled, apart from sinners. And then finally, which we'll move into later on, it's a better priesthood. The Melchizedekan priesthood is a better priesthood because it is based upon a better covenant. The new covenant. The, the old high priest under Aaron was part and parcel of the old covenant. It was Sinai. Christ is Calvary. Two mountains, all the difference in the world. Sinai does nothing but condemn us. Doesn't deal with the real issue of sin and need, spiritual need in our life. There's no justification at Sinai. And there's no peace at Sinai. Righteousness and peace are not together at Sinai. But in Christ, at Calvary, in the new covenant, the promissory covenant, the covenant with the blessings that are bestowed unilaterally by a loving and a gracious Father. They're full, they're final, they're efficacious, they are complete. The word that's used several times in the text here in these chapters is perfect. They have reached the goal, the goal of saving sinners. Do you need the intercessory work of a priest like Christ? We have a priest. Two things priests do. It's mentioned several times in this book and it's obvious in studying priesthood. They make sacrifices and they intercede. And that's what Jesus does for us. He sacrificed himself. And he intercedes for us. And his intercession is based upon his sacrifice. He's able to intercede for us because... There's no condemnation to those that are in Christ. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the basis of the intercessory work of Christ today in heaven for you, my beloved brother and sister, is Christ pleads his own death. He makes his case based upon his own perfect obedient life and his willing sacrifice of himself. And as long as Christ is doing that for you, as long as he's doing it for us, we're okay. We've got the better priest. 